Hope you have your Bibles open to John chapter 21. In order to properly expound this text, we have to dredge up one of the most painful scenes in all of Scripture. Peter's threefold denial of Jesus just a few chapters earlier. In fact, just keep one figure here and look back to John chapter 18. You'll remember in John 18, this is what sets the stage for our text. In John 18, it's Thursday night in Jerusalem, during Passover, and Jesus has just been arrested. And the first mockery of a Jewish trial is happening in the, in the homes of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest and the former high priest. It appears they shared a courtyard. And out in the courtyard of these homes, servants, guards, and others are warming themselves by a fire. The apostle Peter sidles up wanting to see what's done with Jesus. And he tries to blend in. Around the fire, the conversations are happening about the events of the night. And we have the very first denial. Look at John 18, verse 15, where we read, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That would be John speaking autobiographically. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now, I want you to think about the threat posed to Peter in this first encounter. He's confronted by a girl. The term that's used there is a paideia, a teenager, a young girl. She's a servant. She poses no threat. She has no legal power. John 18:17 simply says she's a doorkeeper. She's not a menacing intimidator, but a little girl. All she says is, you're not one of these men's disciples also, are you? Now, it must be quickly asserted, there is nothing illegal at this point about being in Jesus' company. If there was, the authorities would have arrested all 11 of the disciples in Gethsemane, but they didn't. But Peter was afraid. He was embarrassed. He didn't want anyone to know of his association with Jesus. And so he lies. Look at his words in verse 17. First denial. When Peter answers the question, are you a disciple of Jesus? I am not. Then comes the second denial. Look at verse 18. The servants and officers who had made a fire of coals stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. Peter stood with them and warmed themselves. In verse 25, therefore they said to him, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And so once again, he's denying any connection with the people of Christ. I am not one of his disciples. And then the third denial. Look at verse 26 and 27. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. We're told in Luke's account that Peter's Galilean accent gave him away. And so he's confronted this third time, and we learn from further parallel studies in Mark chapter 14 that Peter Peter bitterly disavows any connection with Jesus. He even curses and swears. He would have said something like this, I don't know Jesus of Nazareth, and may God do this or that to me if I'm lying. No sooner do the words of the third denial leave Peter's lips, 
and he hears the crowing of a rooster. Remember our Lord's prophecy about this, that the Lord had said just a couple of hours earlier in the upper room. Luke records it for us where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Do you hear that? Jesus says, I prayed that you'll return, that you'll be restored. But he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. That's when Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you'll deny three times you know me. And then we're told in Luke chapter 22 in this, to make this, this sad saga, this denial, this fall of an apostle the worst. We're told in Luke 22 that dear, right after Peter denies the third time, we're given these haunting words. They would haunt Peter till the day he died. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus was being moved through the courtyard, perhaps from Annas to Caiaphas' house, and, and he and Peter can clearly see each other. There's a, a gap between the soldiers and the men who are, who are roughly walking Jesus from one place to another. And just at that split second of timing, as the rooster crows the third time, Jesus turns and his eyes meet Peter's. And as Peter sees Jesus as he's being moved across the courtyard, Jesus' face by that time would have been covered in spit because the Sanhedrin members had already been spitting on him. His face would have been already battered and swollen and bruised, black and blue and bleeding because the guards had already been punching him, slapping his face. And Jesus' face would have had that haunted, abandoned look. And when he looked at Peter, it was a look of betrayal and insulted friendship. It was a look of reproof. It was a look that broke Peter's heart. And it was a knowing look that said, just in the communication of eye to eye, Peter, it's happening to you just as I told you. Now remember it all. Because I prophesied more than your fall as the rooster crowed, I prophesied your restoration as well. It's a good thing that Jesus had prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail because you know what the evil one whispered in Peter's ears over the next few days. You know the evil one said to Peter, Peter, you're finished. Even if Jesus comes out of the grave, he'll never speak to you again. Peter the rock? Ha, more like Peter the pebble. And telling James and John and the other disciples you're going to be the greatest? And those curse words in the third denial, choice specimens from my own dictionary. Don't you think, Peter, it would be a good idea just to go ahead and commit suicide and end your miserable existence now? But no. Jesus had prayed for him, we're told in Luke 22, that his faith would not fail. Well, our text, look at it carefully now in John 21, all of that is setting and background. Now, two and a half weeks have gone by. Jesus has appeared in a setting where Peter was and spoke to him as part of the corporate group of the disciples, but not individually. But our text, make no mistake about it, is about restoration. And this should immediately grab a hold of your mind and even your heart. The text has a, a primary and a secondary focus. Primarily, it, it applies to ecclesiastical leaders like Peter, an apostle. 
But secondarily, this text applies to all believers. Since every believer in this room, and I'm speaking to you and about you, every believer in this room, if you are honest, genuine, transparent, knows that they sin daily. Listen to what our Shorter Catechism says in question 82. No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but does daily break them in thought, word, and deed. Meaning each of us, each day, betray Christ. And so restoration, what we desperately need, what we corporately do every Lord's Day when we come here, we we name those sins of the past seven days, we agree to that, And we wait to be restored by the word of pardon. That will happen tonight, as I've told you many times before. The highlight of every Lord's Day for me is the corporate confession of sin and the word of forgiveness. The word of restoration. That's what we're going to see in our text today, is the restoration of a fallen believer. You'll need to want to hear this. Perhaps you need it right now. If not, you'll need it next week. Let's seek the Lord's help now as we prepare to open this word. O sovereign Lord, your word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, enlightening the eyes of the blind. Your word is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. But Lord, we confess that we by nature in Adam we are blind. We desperately need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. So we ask you now to enlighten us, giving us teachable and humble hearts, free from pride and worldly wisdom. We pray in the name of Jesus, our only Savior. Amen. So I said the focus of our text is restoration. I hope you'll focus in on John 21, those three verses, 15, 16, and 17. And what do we mean by restoration, if that term isn't familiar to you? Restoration is the reclamation of a prodigal, of a backslider. This is what the psalmist talks about a thousand years before this event when he writes in Psalm 23, 3, He restores my soul. These words could serve as a title for Psalm 32 or Psalm 51, written after David's grievous and shocking sins, committed by a believer of premeditated adultery with Bathsheba and the ruthlessly planned murder of Bathsheba's husband. Most serious biblical scholars are convinced that David penned those two psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, after his restoration. We know that sheep, and sheep are us. We know that sheep are inclined to get lost and wander off into dangerous places. Even as believers, we affirm that. That's why Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, and we need to be restored brought back. The scriptures are filled with converted men who sinned grievously and Christ the shepherd restored them. Think about each of these men and their restoration. Abraham, Moses the murderer, David the murderer and adulterer, Elijah, Peter. Restoration, which involves repentance, forgiveness, and cleansing, is often sweeter and more profound even than conversion. Because at conversion, we have no standing and we simply cry out, have mercy on me, the sinner. 
But at restoration, we come back to Christ as his adopted child and say, I've sinned against light with full understanding of the wickedness of my sin, and I've acted like an enemy. Father, take me back. Be clear on this. If you read verses 15 through 17 and you think that Jesus is somehow torturing Peter and very begrudgingly restoring him, then you've misunderstood how Christ restores his sheep. We're told in Luke chapter 15 that as the good shepherd, he actively pursues his straying sheep, his wandering sheep, to bring them home. It gives us that picture of patience and compassion. Now look carefully at the scene in John 21 with me. Now I want you to notice something that is, that is eerie. And as soon as Peter steps out of this fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee and he walks up to the fire, he begins to realize, oh, Jesus is recreating a scene. Because it's only been two and a half weeks since that Thursday night when he denied Jesus three times. So for example, look at John 21.9. In John 21, 9, we find there that Jesus has prepared on the beach a fire of coals. You know why that would grab a hold of Peter's mind? Because that night, that Thursday night, two and a half weeks earlier, he was, when he denied Jesus each time, he was standing next to a fire of coals. And Jesus will ask Peter three questions. To match the three questions he was asked that Thursday night. Jesus will give Peter an opportunity to clean up his mess. Three times, just like he was asked two and a half weeks earlier. Three times, now on the beach, Jesus will ask Peter to publicly affirm his love for Jesus, which he had previously publicly denied. What you see here is a do-over. Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity now again by a fire of coals. Let's ask you three times. Not only are you one of my disciples, but do you love me? And then notice how Jesus begins the discussion. Look at verse 15. Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah. That stings for Peter. Oh, how that hurts. This is his old name. Jesus calls him Simon, son of Jonah, because he was acting like the old man. You'll, you'll remember that Jesus renames Peter very early in their relationship. But it's as though in verse 15 that Jesus is taking Peter back to the very beginning and starting afresh. He doesn't call him Peter or Cephas, his apostolic name. But here he calls him Simon, son of Jonah, which was his name before he met Christ. Jesus had given Peter that new name because of his confession of Christ. But having denied that confession, his apostolic name was denied to him for the moment. Now I want you to look carefully at what Jesus tells Peter to do. Because there are some of you here today who are in need of restoration. And then immediately as soon as you hear those words of pardon and forgiveness, you're going to say, what is it that I am to be about now, having been restored? Look at verse 15 and 16 and 17. Jesus is going to tell Peter three things to do. Feed lambs, tend sheep, and feed sheep. This text contains profound, repeated imperatives 
to elders. Because we'll find later that, that Peter picks up on this. And in his epistle in 1 Peter 5, he, he picks up Jesus' words of instruction and sets them down when Peter turns around and talks to other elders. We're going to see that the responsibility of elders is to care for lambs and the sheep. By the way, when you look at verse 15, 16, and 17, let me point something out that linguistically you may not be picking up. When he tells Peter to feed his lambs, tend his sheep, feed his sheep, all of these are present, active imperatives. Well, look at the first one in verse 15. In verse 15, when Jesus says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs. So this is the first imperative Jesus gives him. Now listen carefully. This is part of the restoration process. Jesus says, if you love me, you will be busy about the duties of your office. And the first duty is, as an elder, is to feed the lambs. Now notice, in each of the three imperatives, there's a little bit different emphasis. Feeding the lambs, Jesus is speaking of the very young or the very immature, those in danger of being easily captivated by false teaching. Now look at those words in verse 15. I want to speak to people who are relatively new to Woodruff Road, and you think, I'm, I'm trying to figure out sort of the, the ethos of Woodruff Road and what you guys are about, and it seems like you pour an immense amount of time and energy into the teaching and care of children, and you would be right. That's because, first of all, we believe profoundly in covenant theology. We believe God has made promises to us and our children for generations to come. But we also are deeply informed by texts like this. Look at verse 15. This is an imperative to Peter and all who follow him in the eldership. So, for example, in Sunday school, our children are systematically taught the Bible. Maybe you're a parent and you don't know this. But our children in Sunday school in the next hour are taught the Bible in a carefully planned scope and sequence. We're feeding Christ lambs. And then on Wednesday night, our preschool and our elementary children are taught the catechism, what we promise to do at their baptism when we t promise to teach them the doctrines of our holy religion. And so on Sunday morning... Bible, on Wednesday night theology. In other words, we are engaged in the intentional, overt, comprehensive instruction of lambs. Verse 15, look at this, because you could write this as a banner over everything we do in children's ministry. This is our whole strategy of ministry to covenant children. Jesus' imperative, feed my lambs. Look at the second imperative in verse 16. Where the Lord says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then the, the sign of that is you will be busy tending my sheep. Now notice the instruction now is very different than the first one in verse 15. Tending my sheep means shepherding the flock. Peter is so struck by this exhortation of Jesus that decades later, he passes on the same instruction to elders in 1 Peter 5 when he tells all elders... Tend the sheep. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Why shepherd? Because the second person of the Trinity bought them with his own blood and he commands you to do so. The value that the Lord places on the sheep, you, is beyond measure. Because Jesus has said in John 10, I will lay down my life for the sheep. 
If he will go to, to death and bloodshed for the sheep, how should the shepherds then watch over this flock with diligence and patience and love and intentionality? How can shepherds complain of no time to shepherd when Christ places such value on the care and the feeding of his elect ones? Jesus has shown that he values these sheep enough to lay down his life voluntarily. And so that's what he calls his representatives, the elders of the church, to do. Christ is saying, I came down from heaven to seek and save lost sheep. Will you not go a couple of miles and spend a couple of hours to shepherd them? You see, the elder, Peter, and every elder since is Christ's under-shepherd, his representative, and the elder will give an account for their tending of the flock on the last day. Remember the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13, the elders are those who watch out for your souls as those who will give an account. Tending the sheep, look at verse 16. What is involved in this second imperative to Peter? Tending the sheep means knowing what each person in the flock needs. One needs encouragement. Another needs a rebuke. Another needs a warning. Another needs more feeding. Tending the sheep means, first of all, knowing the sheep. Just as a good doctor knows every one of his patients and their individual issues, so a shepherd must know the sheep. Another key element, and we have been challenged with this in the past, and we will be in the future. We know that for certain. According to Acts 20, Paul says that the elders are to fend off wolves. We've had wolves here before. Those are those who want to devour the sheep. We'll have it again. Paul tells us in, tells the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, you will have wolves rise up from inside and you'll have them come from outside. And so be diligent, be on your watch against wolves. Tending the sheep means, among other things, guarding against wolves. But then look at the third imperative. Look at verse 17. Jesus now, for the third time, says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? We'll talk about his grief in just a moment. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now we are to the central task of the ministry of the elders. Look carefully at those words. The central task of the elders is spiritual nourishment. But Jesus changes the figure of speech. You notice in verse 15, he says to him to feed his lambs, meaning the children or the spiritually immature. But now he changes the figure to, to the sheep. Now Jesus is commanding the elders to, to preach and teach and apply to the mature, those with some understanding. And just as Jesus entrusted his sheep to Peter, he entrusts them today to elders. But I want you to notice what it is that is at the core of restoration. There's an element that doesn't change in the three questions. You notice that we go from lambs to tending sheep to feeding sheep. There's something that doesn't change. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. And that is his question about love. Peter, do you love me? And the first question he asks in verse 15, the Lord does something that is devastating to Peter. He reminds him of his own words. In verse 15, he says, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Here it comes. More than these. 
Jesus is refuting Peter's previous claim that even if nobody else was faithful, he would be. Remember his boast? Listen to these words where Peter looks at the other 11 and he says, these chumps. Well, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if all of them fail. But Jesus, you know me. I'm your guy. If everybody else fails, I love you more than them. And so Peter had said earlier in Matthew's account, even if all these others are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus' response in that moment was, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And Peter still didn't get it. He responded, even if I have to die with you, I'll not deny you. Oh, the boastfulness. That's why the writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so by asking Peter this question first, Look carefully at the words in verse 15. Look at what's dangling off the end of the question. Do you love me more than these? Jesus is reminding Peter of his boast that he would be more loyal to Jesus than any of these other men. Peter, really? Do you love me more than these? And notice who else is watching, those other six men, those other six disciples, who that night, two and a half weeks earlier in the upper room, when Peter said, I love you more than all these, even if they all deny you, I won't. You know what they were feeling that night, two and a half weeks earlier? Hey, hey, what are we, chopped liver here? And so Peter, uh, I don't think that you're any more faithful than we are. And what Jesus is doing, as you look at verse 15, is he is humbling Peter. He's cutting him off at the knees. In the 70s, we sang an awful lot of positively awful songs. Sandy and I actually knew them all. But there were none worse than, they'll know we are Christians by our love. If you're about my age, perhaps you've tried to forget these songs, but we sang these words. We're one in the Spirit, we're one in the Lord. So far, so good. And we pray that our unity will one day be restored. Doing well. And they'll know we're Christians by our love. This is great so far. We'll work with each other, we'll work side by side. That's great. And then here it comes. And we'll guard each man's dignity and save each man's pride. What an awful thing to sing. To say that we're worried about saving each other's sin and pride. Tell that to Jesus. Do you know what he's seeking to do in verse 15? Look at verse 15. He's seeking to crush Peter's pride. He's seeking to cut him off at the knees. He's reminding him of his own words two and a half weeks earlier when Peter said, Even if everyone else stumbles because of you, I won't stumble. I love you more than these. Look at Jesus' question. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? A good case could be made that he loves Jesus less than these because he's the only one we know of who verbally three times denied Jesus. Jesus asked a second time about his love. Look at verse 16. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? At this point, Peter's starting to get uncomfortable. He's already humbled. His pride's already been crushed. And he thinks, do we have to do this again? 
Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus does it a third time. Do you love me? And we are told in verse 17 what Peter is feeling. We're told that he was grieved because of this. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing. This isn't sadistic. Notice what Jesus is doing and where he puts the focus. Because this is where the focus of our passage is. In order to restore Peter, Jesus must refocus Peter on the greatest task. Loving Christ. Restoration is all about a renewal of love for Christ. When Christ takes flesh and comes to earth and is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responds with what every Israelite already knew, that the greatest love of all was loving the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. The great commandment requires that you love the triune God. This means that loving Christ more than anything or anyone, no one else can even be equal in your affections. If you think of how you thoughtfully strategize on your best days to show your love to your wife or child or grandchild, you'll plan so much more how you can demonstrate your passionate affection for the living God. Abraham loved his son Isaac so much, according to Genesis 22, that he was ready to sacrifice his son out of loving obedience to God. But to love Christ means to express your love in far more extravagant, affectionate ways than you will to any other being. This means loving Christ with your mental faculties, loving him with your whole mind, <clears throat> so that you'll joyfully give yourself to the careful attribute of the this careful study of his attributes and actions, words and works. You cannot say that you love Christ with all your mind if you never study him and meditate on his perfections. This means loving Christ with your will and your emotions. If you love God, you'll train your affections to be stirred up towards him in ways that infinitely transcend your affections for your team, your music, your husband, your child. This love to Christ that Jesus is asking Peter about. He asked him three times. He's not passive. It's an active, busy passion. It's always beating down and shooing away other competing loves. Love to self, love to Christ will produce in you self-denial. Love of the world, nah. Love to Christ will produce in you a distaste for the fads and fashions of this life. And on your last day, you will have such joy that you're going out of the world to see your beloved Jesus. Love of ease? No, love to Christ will move you to sacrificial action and out of laziness. Loving God, of course, is simply a, a statement of a summary statement of obedience to the first table of the law, Jesus says. Those first four commandments. To love God means we are saying that we will have no other gods, we will not engage in false worship, we will not take the name of the Lord in vain, and we will honor the Lord's day. Even the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, teaches us to love God with this imperative in Psalm 31. Oh, love the Lord, all you his saints. What is never an option in Scripture is to be ambivalent about Christ. Either a man will love him, as evidenced by absolute loyalty, obedience, and service, or a man will hate him and be at enmity with him. 
but it is never an option to just be neutral. Because loving God is the greatest commandment. This is why an anathema is placed on anyone who doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. On a regular basis, Pastor Dodds and Pastor Anderson and myself, we will use that as the benediction. 1 Corinthians 16.22, anathema upon anyone who doesn't love Christ. The person who doesn't love Jesus is an enemy to God and to holiness and truth. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? If God were your father, you would love me. This love on the part of Christians for Jesus is worked by the Holy Spirit in their hearts. It's the mark of all true believers to love this one whom they've never seen. Just as it's the mark of lost men to love the world and what is seen and pleasures and sensuality. I've met believers from Indonesia to Iran, from North Dakota to Namibia, and here's what they all have in common. They all love Jesus. They love him with a sincere love, not a hypocritical love. They love him with a supreme love, not loving mother or father or husband or wife or child more. They love him with a zealous love. They love Christ because of the great need they have that only he can meet. Men have a deep attachment to their food without which they'd starve and their clothing clothing without which they'd freeze. But those pale in comparison to the need that men have for what Christ offers. When they're dead in trespasses and sins, he makes them alive. When they have no righteousness, he freely gives them his own. When they're loaded down with guilt, he bears the penalty for them. When they're weak, he strengthens them. When they die, he raises them up again. When they're fearful, he gives them hope. They love Christ because he's their prophet. He reveals the most glorious truths, the highest mysteries. They love Christ because he's their priest. He made an atoning sacrifice of himself for their sins to reconcile them to God. And he intercedes for them now. They love Christ because he's their king. He rules and defends them against all their enemies. True love to Christ will grow. It will expand through the years of your Christian life. We believe in progressive sanctification. That the believer at 40 will love Christ far more than he did at 20 and 30 and 39. He'll bear more fruit at 50. He'll be more loving to Christ at 60. Therefore, we should ever be striving for, praying for, a deeper love to Christ as the years go by. Let me encourage you after the service to grab your hymnal in front of you and learn how to pray for such a love. It's the Elizabeth Peyton Prentice hymn, hymn number 497 in your hymnals, More Love to Thee, O Christ. Use it as a prayer. Today I would call many of you back, just as John did, John, who was seated on the beach there with Peter, who heard this conversation, who recorded it. John speaks to whole congregations. Perhaps Woodruff Road would be one of them. John speaks to congregations in Revelation 2. And using that same restorative language that Jesus does with Peter, John says, here's your problem. You've left your first love. You need to be restored. You need to turn and love Christ. How do we apply such a word? Well, first of all, notice who it is who restores the fallen believer. It's nothing less than Jesus, the good shepherd. 
Today, if you've come here and you're metaphorically wandering in the far country, failure doesn't have to be final. Christ can restore you. Priests and psychiatrists can't do it, but the Good Shepherd can. And he says to you, do you love me? Another application. How grateful we should be that this account is in the Bible. Otherwise, Christians, after sinning and falling, might despair. But here we have a sinning apostle who repents, is recovered, and restored. And while it's painful to look at Peter, there's great comfort here. We see Peter's deep contrition, his self-abasement, his bitter tears. And we see his transformation of life in virtually everything he does afterwards. Jesus prophesied in Luke 22 that he would turn. And he did. He didn't isolate himself in deep despair, but he sought out the fellowship of the other disciples. He was the first disciple to enter the empty tomb, and he was mightily used of God a few weeks later on the day of Pentecost. Let that chronology shock you and inform you. The same Peter who denied Christ the same Peter who is brought to such pain in this beachfront restoration encounter is the same Peter who now in just a few weeks Christ will use as the preacher who casts out the great gospel net and sweeps in thousands of converts on the day of Pentecost. My friend, failure is not final. Christ can restore you and use you. But in keeping with the weight of the text, I have to ask you, do you love Christ? This is the question Jesus asked over and over and over again to the fallen one, to Peter. Do you love me? Notice what Jesus tells Peter. Immediately after inquiring about Peter's love for him, Jesus tells Peter to serve him by caring for the sheep. Since love is always an action... Love for Christ will always show itself in caring for the flock, the body. If you love Jesus, it must be demonstrated in love for these sheep. Let's pray together. Our Father, many in this room have fallen and backslidden over and over. How we glorify and praise you that you've given Jesus to us, not only to be a Savior, but also a Restorer. We ask that you would enable us to answer this question. Do you love me? With a resounding yes. And that our love for Christ would drive us to service in the body. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.